Welcome to a University of Bath IPR policy podcast. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to today's lecture hosted by University of Bath Institute for Policy Research, IPR. My name is Aurelie Charles, and I'm a senior lecturer in global sustainability here at the University of Bath in the Department of Social and Policy Sciences. We're delighted to welcome Professor Chris Armstrong today to give the final lecture in IPR series, Our Oceans, A Deep Dive, a series which has taken place throughout the year, exploring the world's oceans and what climate change, maritime trade and strategic conflict mean for the future. The ocean sustains life on our planet, from absorbing carbon to regulating temperatures, and as we exhaust the resources to be found on land, our oceans have become central to global sustainability. But today we are facing two urgent challenges at sea, massive environmental destruction and spiraling inequality in the ocean economy. In this lecture, Chris will discuss his latest book, A Blue New Deal, Why We Need New Politics for the Ocean. He will explore how existing governing institutions are failing to respond and makes the powerful case for a world ocean authority, putting equality, democracy, and sustainability at the heart of ocean politics. Chris is professor in political theory in the Department of Politics and International Relations at the University of Southampton. Alongside a Blue New Deal, he is also the author of Why Global Justice Matters, Polity 2019, uh, Justice and Natural Resources, published by Oxford University Press, and Global Distributive Justice, published by Cambridge University Press in uh, 2012. His research ranges across issues of conservation justice, natural resource justice, global justice, climate justice, and territorial rights. Chris, we are thrilled to have you with us, and we very much look forward to your lecture. Once we've heard from Chris, we'll then open up to you at home for questions and discussion. Thank you all again for joining us, and I now pass over to you, Chris. Thank you. Thank you very much, Aurelie, uh, for the introduction, um, and thanks for the invitation to speak. I'm going to try and share my slides now, uh, if you'll bear with me for a moment. So, as Aurelie says, I want to talk today about the the politics of the ocean, and in particular, I want to take a look at why in my view, the politics of the ocean isn't really serving us very well in facing these, these challenges that we, we face. Um, and so just by way of a little bit of background, I already mentioned some of this already, already, but we owe a huge amount to the ocean. It's probably the case that our planet wouldn't even be habitable if it wasn't for the ocean, amongst other things. The ocean smooths out extremes of temperature it drives weather patterns. That doesn't always sound good, but there are hundreds of millions of people who are dependent on monsoons that originate out to sea and so on. Hundreds of millions of people also depend on the ocean for protein and micronutrients because they eat fish and other food sources from the sea. Uh, economies dump huge amounts of waste products into the ocean. So in that sense, we use the ocean as a sink. So climate scientists, I think, are coming to the view that whereas we once saw, for example, the forests of the world as the major carbon sink out there, the ocean is probably the world's largest carbon sink. It also produces 
oxygen, which for which we mainly have to thank these amazing uh, creatures called phytoplankton or uh, plant plankton, which absorb carbon dioxide, sequester away the carbon and release the oxygen back into the atmosphere. So we have a huge amount to thank the ocean for. We have a, a pervasive kind of pattern of dependence on the ocean. But the ocean is also really important socially and culturally. So lots of societies can tell a very powerful story about the connection between land and sea. In the South Pacific, for example, we have a number of small island states which are the culture of which is hugely bound up in the ocean. So some um, South Pacific countries consider themselves to belong to a community they call Oceania. In fact, they argue they shouldn't be considered as small island states, they should be considered as large ocean states. If you look at the map, they are tiny specks in a, a very large ocean. So the ocean is a, a conduit for, for movement of people, for movement of goods. Um, in all of these ways, we, we are pervasively dependent on it. And that dependence is accelerating. So what some social scientists have called the, the blue acceleration has really seen a ramping up of the way in which we turn to the sea for the supports for our economies. The blue acceleration is a, a term that's coined in a paper by uh, Giuffre and and his colleagues. But what this slide, I mean, these, these are just some of the examples actually that Giuffre et al point towards, but there's a really uh, a consistent pattern in the last 50 years or so of ratcheting up these ocean industries. So just to take a few examples, um, most new fossil fuel reserves this century have been tapped at sea rather than on the land. Of course, we need to find alternatives to fossil fuels now, but even as we turn to renewable technologies, it looks as though we are gonna be relying on tidal power, wind at sea, and so on. Shipping, um, something like 80 or so percent of all the, the concrete goods that are traded in the global economy are moved at sea. Aquaculture is fast eclipsing the capture of wild fish as a, a food source globally. So as you can see on the chart, marine aquaculture is, is rapidly accelerating. And then we find some new industries, if you like. So um, deep sea minerals is mentioned on the chart. There are some hugely valuable minerals scattered across the, the deep sea bed in these interesting geological phenomena called poly polymetallic nodules. They look a bit like potatoes um, cast liberally over the sea floor. But these nodules we now know contain some rare earth metals which may well be absolutely vital to high-tech industries of the future if they are to be exploited. Marine genetic resources is another interesting example so as we look for the, the medicines of the future, maybe the, the crops of the future, we increasingly turn to genetic sequences that we find in the, the DNA of these incredible organisms that live out there in the, the deep ocean. You know, maybe a, a kind of jellyfish that we never had cause to think about might hold the foundation for a treatment for some life-threatening illness in the future. 
So the blue acceleration is really a story of the increasing centrality of the ocean economy to the global economy as a whole. The ocean economy has certainly grown faster on average than the global economy. But for all of that picture of dependence and accelerating dependence, we now face enormous challenges. And I'm gonna focus on two of them. One of them is what we can call a, a multifaceted environmental crisis. Now the big picture here with which we're all probably familiar is the threat posed by climate change. Climate change causes two significant consequences at sea. One of them is acidification. So the more carbon that the ocean absorbs in its role as probably the biggest carbon sink, the more acidic seawater is because it forms a kind of dilute version of carbonic acid. And this threatens to wreak havoc with marine food webs. So I mentioned one kind of plankton already, phytoplankton or plant plankton, but the other big foundation of the ocean ecosystem is zooplankton or animal plankton, which largely are these tiny sea creatures with shells, which are calciferous. And these creatures find it much harder to grow and to repair their shells in more acidic water. And we just don't know what happens to the ocean ecosystem if the zooplankton drops out. But the, the potential consequences are, are fairly terrifying. So that's one consequence of climate change. The other, which is maybe a bit more familiar, is warming and sea level rise. So as the atmosphere warms, the ocean eventually warms too. And as the water warms, two things happen actually. One is we get thermal expansion, which just reflects the fact that warmer water is slightly more voluminous, if you like. And the more familiar part of the story is we see the melting of great ice sheets in places like Greenland and Antarctica, which literally pours millions of gallons into the ocean and um, the ocean rises in its average level as a result. And this threatens inundation in many parts of the world and possibly the complete inundation of some countries. We're also pouring all kinds of byproducts of our industries into the ocean. So there's been a great deal of public awareness lately of plastic pollution, but we can also add nitrogen pollution. So agriculture sees a great um, problem of runoff where um, nitrogen-based fertilizers find their way into rivers and eventually into the sea. And this has very negative effects on coastal ecosystems. It tends to spur the growth of lots of algae, which then dies off and sucks all of the oxygen out of the, the coastal areas, which can lead to massive die-offs of fish, dolphins, porpoises, and so on. Fishing practices, we're probably aware of some of the destructive practices out there like bottom trawling. Bottom trawling disturbs um, fragile ecosystems on the sea floor. A really interesting study recently actually found that bottom trawling is probably responsible for more carbon emissions in the whole global aviation industry, which many uh, followers were, were quite surprised by because there is so much carbon locked away in the seafloor that then gets released again by bottom trawling. The, the terrifying 
machines on the slide are machines that have been designed to engage in seabed mining. So as I mentioned, there are these polymetallic resources liberally scattered across some parts of the deep sea floor. And those engaged in high tech um, industries often tell us that we need to mine seabed resources because things like you know, cobalt or nickel or manganese are becoming ever more scarce back on dry land. We'll come back to that. But suffice to say, we are in a sense pummeling the ocean with a whole variety of overlapping challenges. I think it's important to recognize though that there's also another crisis out there. So the environmental crisis clearly commands our attention. But at the same time, there is a, a socioeconomic crisis, a crisis of inequality. And there is a, a widespread pattern of oligarchy, if you like, in the ocean economy. Whichever sector of the ocean economy we choose, we find that it is fairly pervasively dominated by just a few privileged actors. So one interesting piece of social science found that across all of the key sectors of the ocean economy, almost all of total revenues are are monopolized by just 10 corporations, different corporations in each sector, but still this suggests that the, the spoils of the ocean economy are not being widely shared. Strikingly, even though hundreds of millions of people in the global south are heavily nutritionally dependent on fish, there is a net flow of fish from the global south to the global north, which just reflects, in a sense, the purchasing power of people in the global north and our taste for, you know, ever different sources of fish. Uh, um, our varied diets and our purchasing power perhaps unintentionally produce the, the consequence of nutritional deficits in the global south. Why is the ocean economy so unequal? Why is it even more unequal than land-based economies? I think we can point to a number of different factors. One is geography. So, you know, a simple look at the, the atlas of the world will remind us that some countries don't even have coastlines, they are landlocked. There are a number of landlocked countries in Africa, for example, and something like uh, seven of the nine poorest countries in the world are in fact landlocked. So there seems to be some kind of correlation between being landlocked and struggling to advance in the global economy. There are also technological issues. So I mentioned seabed mining. I've already mentioned marine genetic resources. Some of the poorer countries of the world with the best will in the world can't access offshore fossil fuels the mineral resources that are scattered across the deep seabed, because those are enormously expensive industries to enter. So largely what happens is that poorer countries end up selling access to multinational corporations, but those multinational corporations will strike a hard bargain. Finally, I think state capacity plays a role. So we'll talk in a little while about the problem of illegal fishing which is a widespread problem out there. Something like 20% perhaps of all fish that are caught in the ocean are caught illegally. 
and in countries that are global south with the best will in the world again those countries often just don't have the ability to prevent unscrupulous actors out there visiting their coastal territories and scooping up all of the fish so this is a problem and it's also hugely disappointing because when the united nations convention on the law of the sea which we'll discuss a bit later was drafted written in 1982 comes into force in 1994 lots of countries in the global south are optimistic that the convention on the law of the sea is going to turn around the ocean economy and that rather than being a, a vehicle of widening global inequalities the ocean economy is going to serve to narrow inequalities it's going to help to spread the wealth from the haves to the have-nots suffice to say this really hasn't been delivered on as a vision to date unfortunately so the obvious question to ask is why have we ended up with these two crises why is there a looming multifaceted environmental crisis why is there a crisis of inequality why hasn't the the politics of the ocean prevented that why have we had why haven't we had a more effective and just ocean politics to date i'm going to try and persuade you that the answer lies with these great narratives of oceanic governance so oceanic oceanic governance has really been caught in a kind of dialectic or or pendulum switch of between freedom on the one hand and enclosure on the other and this is problematic i'll argue because freedom doesn't really give us the answers to our two oceanic crises freedom in many ways looks like the problem but enclosure also fails to respond to these crises and to finish in this talk i'm going to switch our attention to the high seas which as we'll see are the bits of the ocean which are beyond any state's jurisdiction to look at the toll really that the idea of freedom of the seas is wreaking on high seas ecosystems and i'll finish by considering how we might turn that around on the high seas in particular okay so our first great narrative of oceanic governance is the idea of freedom the free sea or freedom of the sea and to a large extent historically this idea of freedom at sea is associated with one particular scholar a legal scholar called hugo grotius who's a dutch legal scholar who published an essay called mare liberum or the free sea in 1609 i know that grotius has already been mentioned in fact in one of the earlier lectures in this series and grotius writes a really influential argument that says something along these lines you know the ocean is in a sense something that divides us but it's also in a sense something that unites us we can travel across the ocean we can meet other communities we can trade with other communities grotius writing in a kind of theological register says that it appears that god not only allows us to trade with other communities but seems to want us to trade with other communities otherwise why would he have put valuable resources why would he have sprinkled them unevenly across the globe so that one country perhaps has valuable spices another has gold another has valuable agricultural land you know and and so on 
In Mary Liberum, Grotius argues that we have a right and perhaps even a duty to navigate the great ocean and to engage with other communities and to trade with other communities. And although Grotius in fact is a bit less interested in this, to, to fish, to harvest the ocean's bounty to our heart's content. And Grotius says in Mary Liberum that although some people have said that the ocean could be turned into the, the property or the territory of one state or another, those arguments are not persuasive. And Grotius gives these two famous reasons why the ocean should remain free, why it should not become the territory of any one state. The first reason is that we just can't practically turn the ocean into the territory of one state or another. You know, try to plant stakes into the sea and they will just float away. There's no way of saying this bit of the sea belongs to my country, that bit of the sea belongs to yours. Secondly, and probably more importantly, at least for our purposes, Grotius says there's no point to ownership or the extension of territorial claims over the sea because the goods that the ocean gives us are just unlimited. They seem to be infinite in their bounty. So if my country goes and fishes to its heart's content, it doesn't prevent your country from doing the same. We're never going to run up against limits in the ocean economy. Now, I think this narrative has been hugely influential. So certainly right up into the 20th century, the narrative of freedom at sea is the dominant idea of oceanic governance. But what's striking is that Grotius's arguments, for all that he becomes, as he's often called, the godfather of the law of the sea, his arguments are not good. So if we go back to those two arguments, firstly, Grotius says, look, we just couldn't turn bits of the ocean into the, the territory of my state or your state. We've got no practical means of doing that. Well, even at the time, critics of Grotius, like the English scholar John Selden, argue that this is false, because in fact, we can use navigational tools to know where exactly where we are on the sea. We can navigate by the, the stars and you know, using our, our navigational devices. We can know when we crossed into the territory of another state, the marine territory. So that argument doesn't seem to hold water, no pun intended. And secondly, Selden says, it's obvious actually that the resources of the ocean are not in infinite supply. Right? So even in the 17th century, as Grotius is writing, we had seen some localized collapses in fish stocks. Whalers, for example, you know, famously from the Basque country, um, often at the forefront of the whaling industry in the 17th, 17th century, Basque whalers are already reporting that they have to travel further and further south in the Atlantic to find whales to catch. So Selden says, in fact, when you consume the resources of the ocean, you do seem to make things worse for me because you introduce scarcity. And certainly in the years since Mario Liberian was published, that, that view seems to have been vindicated, right? So we see intense competition for what are in fact quite limited resources. Contemporary debates about marine genetic resources, you know, who's gonna to get to patent the genetic code of this jellyfish or that 
shrimp are about control over scarce resources or they are, they are about the, the pursuit of scarce property. The second great narrative of oceanic governance is the narrative of enclosure. So I mentioned already the United Nations Convention on the Law of the Sea, which is written in 82 and comes into force finally in 1994. And the image on this slide um, reveals that process of territorializing the ocean. So on this slide, the light blue sways of the ocean remain what we call the high seas, which are still governed according to the principle of the freedom of the sea. So Groshan freedom, if you like, still reigns supreme in these light blue patches. But what happens with the convention on the law of the sea is that the dark blue patches become territory of individual states. So to make that a bit more specific, um, in the, the, the decades and centuries following on from Grotius, it did become typical for coastal states to claim marine territory. And roughly speaking, there was a kind of a, a, agreement that states should have what get called territorial seas, which stretch for about three nautical miles from their shore. And within that, they should be able to enforce rules. They should be able to monopolize fish, pearls, and so on. But what the Convention on the Law of the Sea does is it extends that kind of resource sovereignty for 200 nautical miles in what get called exclusive economic zones. And in fact, on the, the seabed below those exclusive economic zones, we get what gets called the continental shelf regime, whereby territorial claims can extend for up to 350 um, nautical miles, or in some cases, even further. So states are allowed to uh, make claims at least for continental shells even beyond that. So as this slide makes clear, the, the territorial sea is in a sense still the sovereign territory of states, but it's extended to 12 nautical miles rather than just three. And for 200 or in some cases 350 nautical miles, we see this territorialization process whereby it is the local coastal state that gets to determine who, if anyone, is going to exploit natural resources in these areas. So if you want to fish in uh, Australia's exclusive economic zone, you need permission from Australia. It may give you access or more likely it may sell you access. If you want to extract oil or gas from the continental shelf off the coast of Ghana and West Africa, then you probably need to pay your dues to the Ghanaian state for that kind of permission. Beyond that, we have the high seas where freedom still reigns supreme. And we have this interesting um, legal formal governance of the deep seabed under the International Seabed Authority, but I'm not really gonna be talking about that today, but we could talk about that in Q&A. So what's the problem with enclosure? There are arguments put forward in favor of enclosure. So for example, it's often argued that there's a kind of tragedy of the commons out there on the ocean, that unless we turn these extensive swathes of the ocean into state territory, we will see things like overfishing, we will see resources being used up too quickly or unsustainably or inefficiently. But actually, enclosure brings along major problems itself. One problem is, 
as I already noted earlier in the talk, many states just lack the technological capacity. They lack the capital, the highly expensive capital to engage in ocean industries. So with the best will in the world, some countries just don't have their own fossil fuel corporations capable of drilling offshore. And so they sell access to multinational corporations. And those access agreements tend to be highly one-sided. And the same is true in, in the case of fishing. So for example, in places like West Africa, there are domestic um, fishing concerns. Subsistence fishing goes on, but it largely goes on within the, the territorial sea up to 12 nautical miles, because that's roughly speaking um, about as far as you can go under your own oil power within one day and still return back in that day. But when it comes to exclusive economic zones and the fish within those, it tends to be the case that countries in the global south, in many cases, just again, sign access agreements with multinational corporations, which, as I say, drive hard bargains. So in the case of um, fishing agreements, which have often been struck between the European Union and West African countries, for example, on average, the coastal state only retains about 5% of the, the net value of any fish that are caught. The rest goes to the, the fishing state. So that's one problem. Enclosure doesn't really address our problem of inequality because there is such unequal capacity to engage with and benefit from the ocean economy. But our second problem also comes back with a vengeance, which is a problem of environmental destruction. So it might be that those who usher in exclusive economic zones and the continental shelf regime hope that this will be a solution to our ecological problems, but that's far from the case. So if you look at fishing effort, the amount of manpower or human power, the number of boats, the tonnage of boats that are thrown at the global fishing industry, rather than being reduced once exclusive economic zones are introduced so that fishing can be sustainable, so that fish populations can recover, fishing effort increases ninefold in the decades around the introduction of exclusive economic zones. And the, the net consequence of that we are probably all familiar with. So the collapse of many fish stocks, which in many cases still haven't recovered, and, and serious threats to many other fish stocks. So the, the global fishing industry is really a story of throwing more and more money, more and more capital at a dwindling number of fish. At the same time, we should also mention, because we're talking about environmental sustainability, that what the continental shelf regime has done is really just opened up yet more fossil fuel reserves for extraction. But we already, as we know, have more fossil fuel reserves than we could ever use compatibly with a safe climate. So in a sense, the offshoring of fossil fuel production has delivered lots of benefits to some multinational corporations and to the coffers of some coastal states. But if anything, it's just kind of deferred the problem of decarbonization that we need to engage in urgently. Okay, so those are the two big problems. Freedom has not been a particularly productive narrative or model of oceanic governance, and neither has enclosure. 
I thought it'd be interesting for the rest of this talk to, to engage specifically with the high seas. So if you can remember back to the kind of map of the different legal zones out there in the ocean, the high seas is that proportion of the water column, the water in the ocean, which is beyond national jurisdiction. So beyond exclusive economic zones. And the high seas represent about two thirds of the world's ocean by surface area. But if you consider it by volume, we're talking about 95% at least of the ocean's volume and something like 95% of the, the Earth's occupied habitat. So a huge uh, proportion of the habitable space out there on the Earth exists in the high seas. But as we'll see, it has gone overwhelmingly unprotected. So about 1% of the high seas are protected. And we'll, we'll talk about, I think it'd be useful to talk about exactly why that might be the, the case. So I think the story of high seas governance, I don't want to pull my punches here, is really a, dis, a story of dysfunctional governance. So if we look at the high seas fishing industry, for example, it's highly destructive. It's destructive of the seabed. It's um, destructive in terms of problems like bycatch, where large numbers of, for example, dolphins are killed. Large numbers of fish are caught, which are not the target species and which are just thrown dead into the water. We're probably familiar with these kinds of problems. Churns up lots of carbon, prevents fish populations from recovering. But what's I think really striking about high seas fishing is that it's, if you like, economically irrational. So the, uh, the pie chart on the slide makes clear that um, the fish that are um, caught as a result of the high seas fishing industry represent a tiny proportion of all the fish which are caught out there. We probably could dispense with high seas fishing without making a significant impact on anyone's nutritional needs. No one is really nutritionally dependent on high seas fishing. And the reason for that is poor people don't really engage in high seas fishing because high seas fishing is extremely expensive. Just to get 200 nautical miles out onto the open ocean requires expensive equipment and requires a good deal of fuel. So high seas fishing is highly subsidized in particular fuel subsidies. Without those fuel subsidies, high seas fishing just would not happen. It would not make any kind of economic sense. So actually we have an interesting picture where about half a dozen countries, presumably because of domestic political pressures, are subsidizing to a very considerable extent their, their high seas fishing industries, which often are geographically concentrated and shout quite loudly as domestic political lobbies, but they are in a sense subsidizing the ultimately irrational and destructive activity. If we didn't have high seas fishing at all, no one would be worse off and probably many people would be better off because fish would have a refuge in which to recover from the, the onslaught of industrial fishing. So why haven't we cracked this? Why don't we have large, extensive, effective marine protected areas on the high seas? Right, so I presume we all know what a marine protected area is. It's a kind of geographical designation where some economic activities are limited 
So in this case, it may be the case that um, no fishing could take place. That would be a kind of marine reserve at the strong end, or perhaps there'd be serious limits on the kind of equipment that could be used or um, catch limits, for example, or maybe seasonal limits on fishing to allow fish to respawn. Marine protected areas, when they are properly policed, can be extremely effective in nursing fish populations back to, to bountifulness. Why don't we have marine protected areas on the high seas? It is because of this idea of the freedom of the seas. The governing idea on the high seas is still that if you want to go to the high seas and catch fish to your heart's content, nobody can stop you. We do have organizations called RFMOs or Regional Fisheries Management Organizations. Some of those cover particular bits of the high sea, some of them cover particular species, especially tuna, which is a very valuable species commercially. And if your country is a member of a given Regional Fisheries Management Organization, it may be that limits will be placed on your ability to fish that species or in that part of the high seas because those RFMOs negotiate catch limits. Why isn't that a perfectly satisfactory response to the problem of destructive fishing on the high seas? Well, a big part of the answer is the practice of what gets called exclusive flag state jurisdiction, which is the legal doctrine that if you are a vessel, a fishing boat out there on the ocean, your activities are governed and only governed by the country under which you are flagged. So already we have a problem, which is many states just don't belong to particular regional fisheries management organizations. If your state doesn't belong to that organization, you are not bound by its rules or by its catch limits. You can fish to your heart's content. Add to this the existence of flags of convenience, that again, people are probably familiar with. Roughly speaking, a flag of convenience it points to a situation where a country just sells its flag to a fishing outfit in this case and will not ask questions about any fishing activities it engages in. Flag of convenience countries typically just don't belong to regional fisheries management organizations. Because any individual fishing boat can switch flag, can sign up with a flag of convenience country, it's easy and relatively cheap for them to evade any limits placed on fishing on the high seas by regional fisheries management organizations. So there have been experiments in marine protected areas on the high seas, but they are only binding on states which recognize them. And they are only binding on fishing vessels which are flagged under states which recognize those. It's, it's simple, quick and easy to evade any, any limits. We also have a story of dysfunctional governance right now when it comes to marine genetic resources. So if you remember, I talked about, you know, genetic sequences from maybe a jellyfish might hold the, the secret to a medical application of the future. And if you can patent that, then you may make a great deal of money from that process. At present, the rule on the high seas is First come, first served, anyone can patent marine genetic resources. They don't need to anyone's permission, they don't need to pay a fee, they can simply register genetic sequences to their heart's content. And in fact, almost half of the sequences of marine genetic material that had been patented to date have been patented by just one company, BASF from Germany.
There is an answer in this. Potentially, we could reach out for better forms of governance out there on the high seas. I think that the ocean governance community is aware of the problems on the high seas and has been striving to come up with a, a solution. And particularly the idea of a high seas treaty uh, in the lingo gets called the, the BBNJ treaty, the treaty on biodiversity beyond national jurisdiction, because the high seas is part of the area beyond national jurisdiction. A treaty on BBNJ, a high seas treaty is in preparation, has been in fact for a couple of decades. We've had various kind of intergov intergovernmental panels that have not yet resulted in an agreement, but there is a draft treaty there um, which is still very open-ended. Lots of decisions still get to be made. If you look at the draft treaty, which you can find on the internet, there are lots of either ors. The rule will be either we will do this or that. And the draft treaty, I think, leaves open far too many vital questions. So one big question, if you care about socioeconomic inequality, is going to be the question of benefit sharing. So um, if we're going to have a new set of rules governing the exploitation of marine genetic resources, who's going to get to benefit? You know, when a company comes along and patents a marine genetic sequence, who does it need to pay? Where does the money go? Does it need to pay? And strikingly, the draft high seas treaty just hasn't resolved that question. So it leaves open to date whether benefit sharing will be compulsory or optional. It also leaves open whether benefit sharing will in fact be financial, will involve sending money in the direction of perhaps poor countries in the global south, or whether it might just mean sharing information. Right? So I don't think we have very good grounds for hope that there is going to be a really meaningful form of benefit sharing embedded in a treaty if a treaty is finally agreed. Uh, there's lots of discussion also about these things called EIAs, which are environmental impact assessments. So roughly speaking, the idea is if you engage in an activity on the high seas that could have a significant impact on its ecosystems, you ought to engage in an environmental impact assessment first. There are lots of questions to ask about this. So let's say you engage in an environmental impact assessment, what then happens to it? What if the result of that assessment is that your activities would be damaging to the high seas? Does that mean you can't engage in those activities? Who gets to make those decisions? Um, with whom are environmental impact assessments lodged? Can they be rejected? Can they be given a kind of revise and resubmit verdict? Can activities be prohibited on the basis of their environmental impact. None of this is clear to date, which is, I think, disappointing after all these years of negotiations. And the discussions on marine protected areas also suggest, suggest we shouldn't get our hopes too high. So marine protected areas, there should be a boost to marine protected areas if the High, Sea, High Seas Treaty um, enters into force eventually, but it's still not clear that they will be uh, compulsory, even on states which don't recognize them. By and large, the position that the drafters of the High Seas Treaty have taken to date is that we should not undermine existing freedoms. So if a given state or corporation has the ability to do X or Y or Z at present, we don't want to take away that freedom. 
And I think that's a deeply problematic basis on which to start trying to produce an effective treaty if what you care about is environmental protection and socioeconomic principles of fair benefit and burden sharing. Strikingly, the, the treaty just will not engage with the question of high seas fishing at all. We might think in the same world, step one in the high seas treaty would be to severely limit or even end high seas fishing. But it seems clear that it isn't going to go there because of pressure from high seas fishing nations. Okay, so to finish, I'm getting towards the end of my presentation. I think we need a change in approach. I think the high seas treaty, if it comes to pass, will achieve some progress, but it really pales in relation to the challenges that we face out there. The multifaceted sweeping and accelerating environmental crisis out there in the ocean, especially driven by climate change, but also pollution, overfishing and so on. And also the crisis of accelerating inequality in the ocean economy. Without really substantial processes of benefit sharing, it's not clear how that is ever going to get turned around. I think we need to switch the narrative away from the idea of freedom of the sea. So rather than the default being that any activities are permitted on the high seas, unless we can all come together in the international community and agree that they should be limited or qualified in some ways, I think we should switch the default option so that protecting the high seas becomes the default. And any exploitative extractive activities require permission. Now I'm aware that this is um, blue skies thinking, if you like, or blue water thinking. So in my book, I paint a picture in which we, in the international community, come together to agree to create what I call a world ocean authority, which in a sense acts as the custodian for the high seas. The existing instruments of international law of the sea, for example, the, the Convention on the Law of the Sea does say that the areas beyond national jurisdiction, including the high seas, are part of our common heritage, the common heritage of humankind. But I want to argue that they are not just the common heritage of humankind. It, by and large, it's not even humans who live out there in the ocean. But the ocean is the home to an incredibly diverse, complex, beautiful ecosystem with, with millions of species, many of them as yet unknown to science. And I think, you know, stage one of the process of respecting and protecting the ocean is to treat it as a, an important, fragile, irreplaceable home for those species. I also argue that it's somewhat unfortunate to say the least that the governance of the ocean to date has been highly technocratic, elite driven. We could talk about Brexit and discussions that people have had about fishing rights since Brexit, but the debates about fishing rights in the uh, discussions leading up to Brexit are actually a fairly unusual example of issues of ocean governance finding their way into everyday political discussion. By and large, the ocean is a kind of absence in political discussion. We don't have a lively politics of the ocean, a democratic politics of the ocean. Instead, we have technocratic elite driven governance by lawyers and economists. And I think that if we are going to do justice to the salience of the high seas in planetary health and planetary well-being, 
we need the politics of the high seas to be much more democratic and inclusive than that. So why not, I say, switch the narrative around entirely so that we govern collectively the high seas as something much more like a national park, or we probably should call it, as I say on a slide, an international park, a place where everyone can go, but as when you go to a national park, you take your stuff home with you. You don't damage anything and you don't take anything. So freedom of the seas in terms of freedom of navigation, I don't think we ought to have a problem with, so long as ships are relatively kind of careful about um, spillages and so on. But exploitation of the high seas, I think, is unnecessary and unjust and environmentally destructive. So seabed mining, which is often held, as, held out as a kind of um, the savior of high-tech industries, I think we have sufficient grounds now for an abundance of caution about seabed mining because of the fragility of the ecosystems on the deep seabed. And I think I agree with NGOs like Greenpeace, which argue that at the very least we should have a moratorium on seabed mining. But actually, if we take environmental destruction seriously, it's very questionable whether we could ever have environmentally sustainable seabed mining. High seas fishing, I think, is, is a kind of relic. It's a product of destructive subsidies. Ideally, those subsidies would be reduced. And I can't see if we had a properly effective World Ocean Authority with the right kind of mandate, why it would ever allow fishing on the high seas. It's less obvious that we ought to have a problem with the use of marine genetic resources. So if there is a genetic sequence out there which might hold a, you know, a cure for some terminal disease, um, it's not necessarily particularly harmful for the organism in question for its genome to be sequenced not necessarily clear that we should say no to that kind of activity, but I think that kind of activity should be licensed. If we take seriously the idea that this is all our common heritage, that has to mean something in terms of benefit sharing principles. So someone has to pay something somewhere to use those genomes and the money ought to go to projects of global justice or environmental protection. Do we have any kinds of grounds for hope that this kind of picture could emerge? I don't claim that we are likely to see a World Ocean Authority tomorrow. I said this is blue sky thinking. What I'm really engaged in, and this is the last chapter of the book, I'm engaging in the project of looking what a solution would look like rather than necessarily predicting what is likely to happen. It might be that what happens is business as usual, in which case, in a sense, we all go to hell in a handcart in terms of environmental destruction, which will have huge knock-on effects for our, our planetary ecosystems. Maybe that's the most likely outcome. But if our question is what would a just and sustainable outcome look like, I think this kind of model deserves attention. I think we can draw some hope from looking at um, parallels out there. So in particular, it's interesting maybe to talk about the Antarctic Treaty. So those of you who are familiar with the the governance of Antarctica may know that various states like the UK and Norway, for example, have in the past staked territorial claims over Antarctica. They have claimed that, you know, on the basis of first discovery, that they ought, that, that parts of Antarctica ought to be considered the territory of their states. But in 1959, we have this incredible treaty, the Antarctic Treaty, which freezes any territorial claims over Antarctica which agrees to leave them on ice 
literally and metaphorically, and which creates a system, the Antarctic Treaty System, which still to date, you know, 60 odd years later, still governs Antarctica, the seventh continent, as a place of peace and science. Anyone can go there, anyone can engage in science there, but nobody can exploit the resources of Antarctica. Still to date that treaty holds. And I think that is an inspirational model for the kind of future that I'm looking at on the high seas. And I think the rewards are massive, right? So to look at the positives here, um, fishery scientists, for example, tell us that it really doesn't take a lot of years for fish populations to rebound. Three, four, five years, a decade at most, we could see an enormous recovery of fish populations, so long as we tackle problems like climate change and acidification, which are wreaking havoc on marine ecosystems, so long as we tackle those problems too, we could see the high seas as a kind of, we could see fish radiating, radiating out from the high seas, filling the oceans once more. Different um, communities like whale and dolphin populations, especially whale populations, would take longer to recover, but I think we have grounds for hoping that they could, and perhaps quicker than we might expect. But that, I think, would require a kind of bold approach. Um, so I hope I've persuaded some of you of the problems we face and how deep the problems are, but also that we might see some, some chinks of light in talking about possible solutions. Thank you, Chris. Thank you for this very enlightening discussions and um, very insightful and complex issue being uh, entertaining us with in the sense of uh, there are some hopes and we look at the Antarctica Treaty. Uh, there are some hopes that things could be uh, reaching that blue sky you talk about. We'll start with a question from uh, Roshan, who is from Sri Lanka and is looking at here the issue of bottom trawling, which is a long-term issue between India and Sri Lanka. But given the unequal balance of power between the two countries, is wondering how maritime diplomacy could help small states such as Sri Lanka to protect the blue economy. Yeah, I mean, that's a really interesting question. Um, marine diplomacy is clearly really important. Um, although I'm in many ways critical of the the Convention on the Law of the Sea, which, you know, we have to think looking back as a kind of pre-climate change treaty or a treaty that comes about before widespread awareness of climate change in any case. It has achieved successful peaceful resolutions of lots of conflicts on the, along these lines. Um, in terms of bottom trawling though, um, I mean, I don't know too much about this case and I don't know what each country is arguing I don't really see a future for bottom trawling. Um, we had these kind of incredible statements from the, the early years of oceanic science where some people claim that bottom trawling is actually even beneficial or productive for the ocean, that you know, much like farmland, we need to plow the ocean floor to make it more fertile. We now know that that clearly is not the case, right? Bottom trawling is hugely destructive. And we learned recently it has this enormous carbon footprint. So Ocean diplomacy, yes. Bottom trawling, no. I don't see, uh, one of the most disappointing thing about the kind of post-Brexit picture in the UK is that for all that we said that we can deal with problems um, of, you know, marine destruction, we are still allowing bottom trawling in our waters. 
Thank you. Uh, and follow a question from Timothy here in terms of enforcement of uh, the ocean health initiatives and mine protected areas. Um, how, how can we enforce, especially in the high seas, any treaty that could be signed and implemented worldwide? Yeah, that's a great question. So right now we do have a big problem of enforcement, um, especially given this, this curious historical practice of exclusive flag state jurisdiction, because anyone who wants to avoid being bound by a marine protected area can just flag out to a country that doesn't recognize that marine protected area. So how could we enforce, you know, perhaps in my future of a kind of world ocean authority, how could we prevent unscrupulous actors from engaging, from breaking the rules? Um, so part of that picture is about um, data. Um, it, one of the problems with high seas fishing is that it's kind of mysterious and we don't know a great deal about it. Um, but it looks as though our ability to electronically track high seas fishing is improving all the time. But of course, we also have the kind of legal political problem of, well, even if we do find that a, a kind of one state is allowing its, um, its vessels to break the rules and engage in high seas fishing, what can we do about it? Maybe this is really what the question is pointing us towards. But I think we kind of have, we have to point to, to familiar answers here. So, you know, what do we do if we have a state that just won't agree to cut its carbon emissions? Well, we use diplomacy. We use the threat perhaps of trade sanctions to try and persuade or ultimately coerce states to abide by their international obligations. So I think we have a similar picture out here in terms of the protection of the high seas. I mean, I don't think there's any magical wand that would say this, solve this problem, but ultimately that kind of, um, that mixture of naming and shaming plus threatening, you know, trade related sanctions is probably our best bet. Okay, thank you. And, and do you think in terms of what's happening this week at the UN Ocean Conference, do you see trends of debate that are pointing towards this World Ocean Authorities or are we very far away from that? I think it's a really mixed picture. So obviously I'm trying to follow those debates uh, with interest. And one really important um, development has been the emergence of this, this 30 by 30 target which suggests that we should protect 30% of terrestrial but also marine ecosystems by the year 2030. Um, and I think it's Colombia that has just announced it wants to meet that 30% target early by 2023 actually, so wonderful. So we've seen some, some kind of pioneers in, um, in going out there and proactively protecting um, the ocean. There are a couple of notes of caution. Um, one is that the past history of marine protected areas, even within states exclusive economic zones, hasn't been especially reassuring. So, you know, pretty much everyone in fisheries is familiar with the idea of paper parks, the idea that a marine protected area is really often observed in name only, but doesn't necessarily make much difference on the ground. Um, 
in the UK, for example, it is remarkable how many so-called marine protected areas still allow um, activities like bottom trawling. So marine protected areas need to be really protected, right? They need to be more like marine reserves rather than um, areas which just restrict a few activities. And secondly, we just need to solve this problem of marine protected areas on the high seas. So in my model, clearly, under the World Ocean Authority, that the entirety of the high seas is in a sense an enormous marine reserve. So we don't allow any kind of extractive activities unless we can be really sure that it's not damaging. But even on the, the, the model that is envisaged in the high seas treaty as it seems to be emerging, we have this enormous problem of um, what exactly does it mean to have a marine protected area and who is it gonna be binding on? So. So yeah, in terms of Lisbon, I think watch this space. I think there will be positives that come out of it, at least in terms of goal setting, but it's about having the actions that really would deliver on those goals. Thank you. Uh, we've got a question here. Um, in terms of the debate that came out a few decades ago around storing nuclear waste in the subsea bed of the deep ocean, but then the idea was abandoned. Now, regardless of likelihood, in, if this idea were to be pursued again, perhaps in a trial run and would also be safe for the ocean, how would you view this, uh, given that you said that seabed mining is problematic and this storage effort would likely have an effect on seabed? Yeah, that's an interesting question. And one that I'll confess I haven't really thought about. Um, so the burying of nuclear waste is not, is not not a kind of major issue in these debates to date. Um, I think what I would say would just be very kind of conditional. Um, so if it's true that nuclear waste has to be buried somewhere, so you know even existing nuclear power stations generate waste and it does need to be buried somewhere, then it ought to be buried in the safest place. It's hard to see that that will be on the high seas, right? Because the reason that seabed mining has been has often been claimed to be on the verge of coming to fruition, but has never quite got there to date, is because it's very technologically difficult. It's um, you know um, drilling through often literally mile well not drilling but but pumping things or extracting things through often literally miles of water is extremely difficult and um, hazardous. So I think the idea of storing nuclear waste under the high seas would be a bit terrifying because it looks as though so much could go wrong. But I also imagine that would just be prohibitively expensive. So I'm just speculating this really isn't my area. So I would imagine that if countries were going to be burying nuclear waste under the sea, it would be within their own exclusive economic zones. And I take it that the contemporary law of the sea would provide some kind of framework for that. But yeah, that, that would be something I'd have to go and find out some more about, I think. Thank you, Chris. Um, I have a question regarding any funding mechanism you, you'll be aware of, because we know SDG 14, life underwater, is one of the most underfunded SDG worldwide. So I was wondering, other than taxing those 10 corporations, do you see any uh, successful cases for funding uh, such world ocean authorities or any initiative that could lead toward that? Yeah, that's a, that's a, it's a real challenge. So we're aware of, you know, back on dry land, the biodiversity crisis is going to require a huge ramping up of 
biodiversity related funding and yet existing funding sources are just you know woefully under resourced so the the global environment facility in particular it doesn't look as though we can obviously just turn to those facilities and say well you have the money so let's have some of that it looks as though they are also kind of scraping around for countries to to actually meet the commitments that they've made um so i think that if commercial activities are acceptable on the high seas if they would be licensed by this kind of world ocean authority that i envisage then environmental protection would be one of the the most obvious ways of spending um, any money gained so you can imagine a kind of model whereby you know a corporation wants to patent the genome of a particular you know deep sea organism so one of the interesting things about um, deep sea organisms is they're, they're extremophiles. They live in these extremely challenging environments. And for that reason, scientists tell us, they often have really um, incredible capacities. And so because of those capacities, they may well hold the future for you know, some kind of treatment. Um, so if it looks as though, I mean, I don't see an obvious objection to a World, a world Ocean Authority in a sense, licensing those genomes or, or selling the right to patent those genomes. And that would be a source of income. And I think that environmental protection would be the obvious place to spend it. Um, it will always remain the case that the high seas can't fix all of its own problems. Right? So the big threat to the high seas is really climate change, acidification, um, and that has to be fixed back on dry land. But to the extent that there are kind of high seas related problems that arise on the high seas or can be fixed on the high seas, I think um, marine genetic resources could provide a kind of stream of money to fund that kind of protection. Thank you, Chris. We have a question from Jenny Trujillo, uh, who's environmental engineer from Colombia. Uh, where they have a port in the municipality of Buenaventura, which is located near area of great biodiversity. Um, but it's also an area highly affected by corruptions, few job opportunity, and therefore population cannot uh, really meet their own basic needs. So her question uh, is really about here, in this condition, how can we focus policies and governance efforts to help this area? Yeah, that's a really interesting question too. So. So one of the, the claims that I, I've made today about ocean industries is that they are highly unequal and often quite elite driven. And this means that the, the ocean economy often serves some interests more than others. So I think there's a really important story about how we can turn around coastal communities so that sustainable ocean industries of the future genuinely support and nurture the regeneration of these coastal communities. So that's, that's actually key to the idea of the Blue New Deal, which I put in the title of the book because it's quite an important theme. So, you know, just as, you know, in the case of the Green New Deal, roughly speaking, the idea is, look, if we're gonna have to respond to climate change, why don't we do it in such a way that we, um, spread the benefits to left behind communities to impoverished communities why don't we have a a green transition that's also a just tra transition socioeconomically 
And the idea of the Blue New Deal is, is very close to that. So there are lots of examples that I discuss in the book of sustainable ocean industries that also seem to have a lot of promise in terms of supporting employment, community empowerment. So one of the, the, the issues about existing ocean industries is actually they often don't support much in the way of employment. So not many people in the big scheme of things are involved in offshore fossil fuel extraction. Not many people are employed in industrial fishing outfits. But we could see the emergence of well, some examples would be um, some forms of marine aquaculture like um, shellfish farming or seaweed aquaculture, for example. We could see those things being really locally based, community driven um, industries that supported lots of employment and helped because coastal communities on average in many countries are relatively poor and disadvantaged. I think th these are really kind of important um, possibilities to investigate. Uh, the question that did mention ports, another example there is the idea of green ports where rather than ports being these kind of big dirty places where ships come and go and uh, often emit lots of, um, lots of nasty pollution, we could see ports transitioning into, you know, the idea of the green port, um, which is that they might be electrified, that shipping might be electrified, might be made sustainable, that green ports might actually be recycling hubs, that they could have a future in the, in the green transition more broadly. So, so those are some of the ideas I'd point towards, but I think there are lots of kind of possibilities there for, for turning around these, these areas. Yes, certainly. And I don't know if you attended Mark Spaulding lecture a few weeks ago with us, who's the president of the Ocean Foundation. He talked about a lot of community-led initiatives that they've been working on, have been very successful. So, yeah, yeah. So thank you, Chris. Thank you for your time today. And thank you for such a brilliant presentation. I'm sure we've all learned a lot today. Uh, we're really grateful to your time and expertise. Thanks also to all of you at home for joining us today. As mentioned, the event will be available as a podcast and online video shortly. The recordings of all events in the series, including Mark Spaulding's lecture, are available via the IPR website. So have a look at our website, bath.ac.uk forward slash IPR. Uh, where you'll be directed to the relevant pages. Thank you again to Chris and to you all at home. Enjoy the rest of your day. Thank you. Bye.